it's, it's, uh, it's certainly, in, in many ways, it's certainly um, more difficult as far as what's being, what's being said here. And so, by God's grace, we'll work through this. Let's go ahead and pray for the Holy Spirit to help us, and then we'll start. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate us, give us help. Thank you for being the author of scriptures and also for helping your people to understand your scriptures, Lord. So give us grace to see Christ. Thank you that he is the one who saves us from all our sins, that he alone is worthy to be honored and exalted. Lord, help us to see this as we open these scriptures today. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans. Thank you for providing us with the revelation that comes from the God of gods, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Mark chapter 4 and verse 21 through 25 is where we are. So Mark chapter 4, 21 through 25, and I'll read this and then we'll go through it verse by verse. Okay, so as you're going through this, so the things to keep in mind is um, two things. Number one, there's two parables here, one about the lamp and another about the scale or measure. And also you're going to see this summons to hear. We saw that last week. He was talking about hearing. He started with hearing. He ended with hearing. And so what you're seeing here is that Christ himself, you know, it's one thing for somebody to tell you, hey, this is really important. Important. You need to hear what I'm about to say. It's a whole other thing when the king of the universe comes to earth and tells us to hear and to listen. That's a whole other option, right? Or object. We don't have, it's like, hey, if someone tells me to hear and they're just a human being, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, I guess depending on who they are, yeah, I might hear. But when God commands us to hear, our ears must perk up. Um, but we'll see that that in itself is, uh, is mysterious how that works. So chapter 4, 21 through 25. And this is Christ. He says, And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And so, as with all parables, there are certain objects here. There are certain things in the parable that you have to figure out, okay, who is that? So last week we are talking about the sower. The sower goes out to sow. The sower is Christ. The sower is the, the, the one who scatters the seed. That's Christ. What's the seed? That's the gospel. And so the same thing here, when you're looking at verse 21, for instance, when he says, and he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket. Okay. Um, sometimes having an English translation is always nice. Actually, we should not say sometimes. It's always nice to have an English translation, but it always does help um, in certain places, especially to know kind of what's going on behind the scenes in the original language. And so these are one of those instances. So when you look at the word a lamp, if you looked at that same word in the original Greek language, it would actually be the lamp, which is a big difference. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, so this is saying the lamp, and then when it says the, it says a, a lamp is not brought. Well, in the Greek, it says something like the lamp does not come, and so a lamp that is brought is different from a lamp that comes. A, a lamp that comes is almost like a lamp that walks, a lamp that can do what it wants, a, a lamp that is animated in some degree, right? If you're talking about a lamp right here, this lamp cannot go anywhere. But when Christ is talking about this lamp in this parable, he's most definitely referring to a lamp that is moving around. It's doing things. And it's not some kind of like 
spooky ghost story either. So what is the lamp that he's talking about? Okay, He's talking about himself. He is the lamp. And I'll show you why. Second, um, Don't turn here. I'm just going to quote it. But 2 Samuel 22, 29, it says this, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. John, and do turn here. Turn to John chapter 1. Um, and this is, there's so many references to Christ as being, as being the light of the world, right? Um, so this is one of those areas. John chapter 1, and then look at one, uh, chapter 1, 4 and 5. John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Christ is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then if you go down to chapter 3 of John... You know, we love John 3.16, and we do. John 3.16 is great. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We love that. We should. Okay? Skip down to verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Remember last week we were talking about the parable of the, so- the, parable of the sower. The soil. And the sower goes out to sow and he casts the seed and there's this kind of soil that whenever you cast the seed on the soil, Satan comes and plucks the seed out right away. And we're talking about why is it that for some people they have no interest in the things of Christ whatsoever. We're talking about how well, it's kind of like Adam. Adam sins against God before he's naming animals. He's right with the Lord. He's communing with God. He has a perfect relationship with God. Once he sins though, once he breaks that relationship, when God comes looking for Adam, in the cool of the day, in the Garden of Eden, you would think Adam would come running out to God and say, God, man, I missed you so much, you know. But what's he do? He's hiding now. Why is he hiding? Because he knows his deeds are evil. And so Christ as the lamp, he comes in and he exposes things, right? He exposes darkness. The gospel always exposes the darkness, whether it's of our lives, whether it's of the culture. The darkness is always exposing things, or excuse me, the light's always exposing things because that's, that's what lights do. It's almost like, uh, you know, the, my favorite illustration of this is cockroaches. Because if you ever have uh, an infestation of cockroaches, and we did in... in um, in College Station, man, my poor wife, she'd come into the kitchen, and, and I mean, who, who like, nobody likes cockroaches, but she goes into the kitchen late at night, and she flicks the light on, and those cockroaches are everywhere, and what do they do? They hightail it, right? They're looking for darkness. They love the darkness. They love the protection of night. They're going for these, these, these crevices and crannies, but that's really what you're seeing here. That's the, that's the condition of man. So when the gospel comes forth, we as people, let's say if we're not in Christ, what happens? People respond to that light in the same way as a cockroach responds to natural light. They do. They run. They scurry. They don't want anything to do with it. They want to suppress it. They, they want to get away from it. They're uncomfortable by it. That's what's going on here. The lamp is the light of the world. And if you remember why Christ is telling this parable, Christ is telling this parable because of the same reason he told the parable of the sower. The reason why these the, the disciples are having... A problem right now. And, and, and not only the disciples that are with, with um, Christ in this moment. But again, remember the audience who are, who are reading this. So Mark is writing this about 20 years after Christ was crucified to people living in Rome in the empire at a time. This would, this would have been probably a little before Nero, if not during the height of Nero's reign. And so you remember Nero. Nero becomes the vicious... Um, Caesar, emperor. But man, if you think about what's going on, think about being a Christian and knowing and believing, truly believing that Christ, the Messiah, the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, He comes into the earth and then He's put to death on a cross. 
You're thinking what? You're thinking the same thing Jews today. Jews today, if you talk to a Jew about the Messiah, what do they say? Well, he was a liar, man. He got, he got crucified. Christ, he, he, they don't see him as, as... Jews don't see Christ as the Messiah. They see Christ as a liar. <laughs> Why? Because he was a failure. He got crucified. So in the, in the minds of the disciples, now we know that Christ three days later was raised from the dead. But you still have to think, okay, if I'm following Christ... And yet everywhere around me, I'm seeing the same followers of Christ being put to death, thrown into the arena, being mauled by lions and tigers intentionally by by the emperor of Rome and people going wild and crazy and they love it. And if you read the reports of the first century and what their perspective of Christians were, Christians were the scum of the earth. They were incestuous, they would say, because um, they called people brother. They were... um, they, they also partook of uh, they, they, they partook in what they called the love feast that was the Lord's Supper they, um, they were cannibals why because they partook of Christ's flesh and his blood and so they had all these they had all these rumors going around about the Christians they were not very popular people okay and so the Christians are trying to figure out well I can't you know I can't put my finger on why if I'm following God, why am I why am I seeing my daughter being, you know, taken advantage of by by human beings and then thrown into the arena and now they're coming for me next? Why is that happening? Right? That's a very honest, human, sincere question. That's the question that the disciples are asking Jesus in a sense. Why? Because what happens with Jesus before he starts telling these parables? His family has just said, Hey, you're crazy. The Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you're possessed. The scribes are saying, Jesus, you blasphemed, we need to kill you, right? And so the disciples are over here thinking, man, this is not going too well. I thought the Messiah, when he comes, things were going to like change, but they aren't changing. Things are getting worse for us right now. And so Christ is giving this parable about the lamp. And so when he's saying this, he's saying, okay, the lamp comes in. Now look what he says here. Okay, so the lamp is Christ. You can also look at the the lamp as being something like the gospel in general. So the, 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 um, if you think about um, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, when you would, have, you would have something like this that we try to hide, but uh, there's something behind there. There's candles, right? Well, in the tabernacle, they had something similar. It's called a menorah. It's wooden. And it was, it was, there, were, um, there were 12 lamps. Um, um, excuse me. There were, there were, how many lamps were there? I can't remember how many lamps. There were 12 loaves of bread in the tabernacle. The 12 loaves of bread represented Israel, the tribes of Israel. The lamp in the tabernacle was intentionally pointed upon the loaves of bread. What did that show? God's face, his blessing upon the tribes of Israel. So in this sense, you're seeing this imagery of Christ being the lamp. Christ is blessing his people. Christ's face is blessing his people. In Christ, we are blessed. But look what he says. Now, he's asking this question. He says, where does a lamp belong? Does a lamp belong under a bed? Does it belong under a bushel? And under a bed there is not kind of like what we think of a, uh, as a bed. It's more like a bench for dining. So when you're sitting on something in the dining area, you would put a lamp on the lampstand, right? You wouldn't put it under the bed or under the the, the table there. You would put it on a lampstand. And so he's rhetorically saying, okay, so when you have a lamp, where do you put it? You don't put it under a bed. You don't put it under a bushel. Well, well, where do you put it? You put it on a lampstand. And so that's the point, right? So Christ is saying, listen, as things... Now look what he says in verse 22. Nothing is hidden except to be revealed. What's the purpose of this lamp? To be revealed. What's happened with this lamp so far? It's hidden. It has not been revealed to everybody yet. 
And you see this especially on the one hand in the lives of the disciples. You see it on the other hand in the contemporary aspect of the first century church. The people Mark is writing this to. And you also see this even in our own day. Okay, So what's happening here is when Christ is saying, Christ makes a contrast here. Okay, The lamp is not going to be hidden forever. But for right now it is. Right now being for them. Okay, When they say hidden, remember what we talked about in Mark chapter 4 where he says, look at verse 11. Mark chapter 4 verse 11. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And it sounds like Christ is saying, you know what, we don't want that yet. It's not time for that yet. Do you remember how many times we've run into this idea of secrecy as far as who Christ is in the Gospel of Mark? Do you remember that? So if you turn to chapter 1, look at chapter 1, verse 25. So after Christ heals people, what's He say? Don't go and tell anybody what I just did. Don't go and tell them it was me. Go and do this, but keep your mouth shut when you do it. And everyone, you know, when you read that, you're kind of like, well, why is he saying that? Why? I, I would think he wanted everybody to know it. So for, chapter 1, verse 25. Um, Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Um, uh, verse 25, excuse me. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Verse 25, he says, be quiet and come out of him. Verse 34. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Right? Don't go around and tell everybody who I am. I'm not permitting the demons to speak, he's saying, because they'll, they'll share who I am. Um, another place is chapter 1, 44 and 45. And he said to them, or said to him, say that, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. That was the leper. He heals the leper. He says, don't go tell anybody. But what's the leper do? Look at 45. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And that is one of the secrets to understanding why Jesus is saying the lamp has not been fully revealed yet. At least in this culture. Why? Because as Christ is going through here, we've talked about this, Christ is popular already. When John the Baptist was arrested... For criticizing Herod for taking his brother's wife. And then you read Josephus. And Josephus says, yes, that is true. That's why John the Baptist was arrested. The other concern, though, that they had, that Herod had, was that John the Baptist was becoming so popular that there was a riot that was about to break out from the people um, against Rome and against Herod. So Herod's concerned that when John the Baptist is alive, he's so popular that there's going to be an insurrection. Jesus Christ comes in, and he's a lot more popular than John the Baptist as far as people coming. Remember, people are walking 150 miles just to see where he is so they can be healed and things like that. Thousands of people. And so you know Jesus is aware that, hey, this thing can really get out of hand very fast, very quickly, before I've finished my mission yet. So that's the first thing to know. Why is the kingdom at this point hidden? Again, thinking about it through the, from the perspective of the disciples. Why, why are, remember Jesus' own brothers before they're converted. Jesus, you can do all these things. Why don't you go to Jerusalem and tell everybody, show everybody? Because you, know, you shouldn't hide these things. His own brothers tell him that in John. So Christ is very much aware of the fact that Christ rebukes him. He says, no, I'm not going to Jerusalem. 
I'm not going to go show it. And then he actually turns out and he, he, um, later he goes. But the whole point here is that it's not time yet. The disciples and us, we're always thinking in terms of our timeline. Right? We're thinking of our expectations. You know, Christ, if it was me, I would do it this way. If it was me, I would do this, I would do that, I wouldn't do that. Other than, rather than just say, Christ, Christ knows what's best. And so Christ is very much aware in verse 22. He knows that this idea of the lamp is, um, right now, it's, it's something that is hidden. It has not been revealed in its full manifestation yet. But it's happening. It's taking place. You know, as Christ is going around and he's crushing demons, he's a demon crusher. He's the head crusher. He's slaying dragons, demon, demons. He's casting them out. What's happening is the kingdom of God is advancing. It is spreading. Disciples are being trained. They are seeing this and learning. So the kingdom of God is not to say the kingdom of God has not come yet. We've seen in other places where Christ says, if the kingdom of God, he says, um, in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. He says, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judge. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come. He's telling his disciples, I'm not saying that the lamp, the light of the world, the Messiah, has not arrived yet. It has come. The disciples are right to recognize that. But the question as far as what kind of advance should this lamp have? What kind of, exp- what kind of brightness? What kind of glory? What kind of blaze should this lamp have? That's a whole other issue. Because now it's like in the right time, at the right moment, this is going to break out and do what Christ wants to happen. And you see this. This is my favorite part of this whole thing. It's so nice to live 2,000 years later and to actually see the fruit of what took place. Again, I mentioned Christians being thrown into the arena so that lions and tigers could maul them to death. Okay? That, was, that was roughly in the year 60, but there were 10 waves of persecution leading up to 300. Think about this. Okay? This point, in this point of history, the Christians are not just nobodies. They are outlaws. They are considered atheists because they don't think all these other gods are real. And yet, think about this. If you would have gone to one of these Christians... And said, guess what's going to happen to you? Guess what's going to happen to Christianity? Guess where it's going to be in 300 years? Have you all ever seen the statistics on that? So by the end of the first century, there was something like 100,000 Christians. By the end of the first by by the second century, there were 3 million Christians. By the third century, there's 20 million Christians. And in 310, what happens is, is Constantine comes to power and he actually makes the entire Roman Empire Christian. Imagine that, right? So you're looking at it from the perspective and you're saying, yeah, I'm seeing these people suffering and being persecuted and I'm being called an atheist and I'm being called incestuous. I'm being called all these names, even though we're not. I'm being called these things and yet I'm following the Messiah and they're trying to figure out what, why, isn't it, why isn't this working, Right? I mean, are you the Messiah or are you not? Now, Christ knows what's going to happen, but Christ is trying to chill them out and say, listen, this is the time when the gospel of the lamp has not been fully revealed yet. There's a time when that will happen, but it's not yet. It's future, not yet. It's already and not yet. Okay. Um, Now, the second thing is this. So when you're talking about what is going to come to light, what's going to be revealed? Well, a few things. When Christ is saying this here, he hasn't been crucified. He hasn't been raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost has not been poured out. 
So in these ways, the light of the gospel really has a lot of work left before the full light comes in. So even if you were Peter on the front line, seeing Christ do all these things, he's casting out demons, doing miracles. Even then, Peter has no idea what's going to come. He has no idea. Even when Peter is recognizing that Christ is the Son of God, and Christ says, blessed are you, Simon. Even then, Peter doesn't fully know, comprehend what's going to happen. And so that's what Christ is telling us. Christ is saying, and you could say the same thing even for us, right? We have 2,000 years of church history to go on to say, you know, it's a glorious thing to see. Look what he says here. Look what he says in, in, uh, at the end of verse 22. He says, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 23. And then 24. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And more will be given you besides. So what he's saying is this, right? So he starts by saying, okay, you have this lamp. You're wondering what, what's going on with the lamp. It's not, being, it's, it's, it's not being revealed. It's not being seen by others. People aren't seeing these things. And, and Christ is perfectly aware of this. But then Christ flips it. And he says, okay, I know you're saying this, but listen. By, he says, by your standard of measure. And he's saying, literally, this means in whatever you measure, it will be measured to you and will be added to you. Okay, so if you're thinking about the advance of the gospel, first of all, and the things still to come. So even in our own life, do we, have we had a, a fully realized understanding of the kingdom of God come to fruition yet in our own day, 2,000 years later? No. Which is amazing. Because even as it stands, you know, a lot of times we have this mindset that things get worse and worse and worse, spiritually speaking, as, as far as the Christian faith goes. That's, that's crazy. Think about all the advancements of Christianity throughout the world. There's something like 2 billion, as we mentioned, 2 billion Christians. Okay, Starts out with nothing, then you have 2 billion. But even the advancement of the Christian gospel, when the gospel goes out, think of... Um, and this goes in, in line with verse 25, where he says, Forever, forever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. So what do you have in the gospel? So Christ has given us things in the gospel. That's where he's talking about these measures. So things that have been given to you, to that extent that you respond to those things that have been given to you, and you use those things, and you embrace them, and you live in light of those things, what's he say? More is going to be given to you. Now you can really abuse this. And you can make it worldly and carnal and say, well, hey, if I, if I have a little bit of money, then that means God is pleased with me. And, and if I do what's right, he'll give me more money. Right? If I have health, then that means God's pleased with me. And if I act really good, then I'll have more health. Right? But that's not what he's saying. He's talking about the things that the gospel has given you. What has the gospel given us? It's given us salvation. It's given us wisdom. It's given us a hatred for sin. But you know what else it's given us? Think about the blessings of this life, the sunlight. Who does that come from? It comes from God. Think about, and this is something that everybody has. You know, the atheist has sunlight. The atheist gets rain. The atheist is someone who has usually a dog. They have, a, they have, they have friends. They have family. They love people. They're able to love, be loved. They have these things, but these things are gifts that come from God. The gospel has come, has given some blessings to people, but those blessings that they have will be taken away. 
But for the Christian, the things that we have, we have all of those blessings. We also have salvation. We have a new life. We have um, the things of Christ in our lives. We have joy. We have peace. But here's the other thing, right? If you're thinking about the long-term effects of the gospel, think again of what does the gospel give us? Modern medicine, modern science, the laws of logic, numerical law. Education, hospitals, hotels. Those are all things that came through the gospel. You don't get hotels without the gospel. How do hotels come about? Christians say, you know what? These people don't have anywhere to stay. They're crossing through. Maybe we should build something for them so they have a place to stay because we love our neighbors. Here you go. They build a hut or whatever it is. That's a hotel. It becomes a hotel. Education. How does Christianity and education have anything to do? Well, what do missionaries do? The first thing they do when they go out, do you know what this land was like before there was any gospel proclamation? You can read books on what people were like in this area before the gospel came into this area. They were going around slaughtering each other, dragging people across hot coal, worshiping dead crows, eating each other, everything. That's how we were up in the north, northern Europe, right? That's wherever you look in the world, the gospel is what changes cultures and environments. It does. And then when the gospel leaves, what happens? Pandemonium, chaos, confusion, hatred, hatred for one another, all these things, discord. Okay, so education comes about. The first thing missionaries do, even to this day, is they go and they teach people to read. Why? Because Christians are people of the book. This isn't Islam, right? Where you just have to memorize the Quran and not even know what it teaches or means and you can go to heaven. No, Christians are, are people of the book. That's the beauty of Christianity. That it goes wherever the gospel goes, it changes everything around it. It changes work attitudes. You know, you go into the store today, you go to McDonald's or except for David, our brother over here. You know, really though, think of the work ethics. And you know, people all the time, they're like, man, the kids' work ethics these days, they're terrible. You know, people's work ethics, they, they're, they're horrible. And they are horrible. Why? Because what are they working for? They're not working for God. They're working to get paid. They're working for something else. But if you have a Christian work ethic, what happens when somebody gets converted? I no longer work for myself. I go to work because in working, I can glorify God, I can please God, I can take care of my family, things like that. It changes everything. It changes my attitude. It changes my perspective. So even the way I work, whether it's a plumbing job, whether it's at McDonald's, praise God, wherever you work, you can glorify God in your work, whether you're a mother at home, whether you're a mother working somewhere, whatever you do. Because when I do this, I'm glorifying God as God's people. You see that? So the work ethic in that culture, what do you know? It gets better. Gospel leaves, what do you know? Work ethic gets crummy. It's like, man, what do we do different? How can we make it better, you know? Christian nationalism. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's true though. Think about it, right? Is that a dirty word? I really can't figure out if that's a dirty word or not, but I can't figure out why. Why in the world? Why in the world? It would be such a disastrous thing. To have a nation that was Christianized. Would it be a bad thing? You're like, man, all of a sudden people's work ethics are going to get a lot better. We're not going to murder people. We're not going to, we're, we're going to be able to trust people. Man, that's, that's horrible. That sounds terrible, right? You tell me, oh man, we're going to learn to read. Education is going to be really important. Classical education, like all that. Man, that's horrible. Babies aren't going to be murdered anymore. People aren't going to be racist anymore. Why? Because Christianity teaches that you're made in God's image, whether you're black, white, yellow, red. Where are you going to find that without Christianity? 
Atheism doesn't give you that. Atheism says you came from rocks. What's wrong with being a, a racist if you're an atheist? Right? So Christianity has given us a lot of things. But the question is, what do we do with those things? You see? And that's where he's saying this. And whatever measure, it will be measured to you, more will be added to you. So in other words, if you receive these things in the right way, then he's going to give you more. You see that? If you take these things and you reject these things and you're like, oh God, thank you for the sunlight. Of course, you're not saying this if you're ultimately rejecting it, I guess. But you know, you're just going about your day. Think about your own life. I mean, how often are we, even Christians, looking at the sun and saying, God, thank you so much for the sun. I mean, the sun, the, the, the rain, the seasons, these things come from the Noahic covenant. When God destroys everything in the flood and the Noah comes off the ark and God makes this covenant with Noah and says, seed time and harvest, seasons, all these things, there is never going to be a time on earth where human beings are alive, where you're going to not only be flooded out, but when you're not going to have this, this, this harvest, this season, these weather patterns, all these things, they come from a good God. And the question is, though, what do you do with those things? How do you recognize? Like, how do I receive those things? Now, in Christ especially... Ultimately, the best part of all of this is the fact that we, who were once not a people, in Christ become God's people. Um, in the scriptures, it talks about that apart from Christ, you're, you're, you're without God in this world and you're without hope in this world. Christ says that he comes that you may have life and life abundantly, which tells us what? You know, apart from Christ, if you're not in Christ right now, you're dead. You're spiritually dead. You have no purpose of existing in a sense. Now you do because you're made in God's image. But as far as just the practical outworkings, think about this. Right? What's the purpose of life if it's not God? You're like, well, my family. Well, your family's not always going to be there. I'm sorry. Right? Your family is, it consists of people who are very inconsistent, not perfect. They mess up all the time. And if that's your purpose of being, if that's your life, if that's your God... That's not, that's not going to be good, right? Work, family, money, things that are good. And yet these things are not the purpose of life. You are not meant to live for these things. You were meant to live for the glory of God and to enjoy God. So that's what Christ is saying here. Look at the parable now in light of that, okay? And he was saying to them, take care of what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Even what he has. So what do unbelievers have that will be taken away from them? Common grace, first of all. They're going to lose. You know, uh, I remember going to the jail for jail ministry. And in the jail, and granted, anytime we're in a really rough spot in life, we look around and we say, this is hell. I mean, not, this is hell. It can't get worse than this. You know, and then you think about, of course, it could always be worse. We know that. But in the moment for us, you know, it's like, man, this is the worst it gets. We are in hell right now. But in hell, think about all the good things that we have in this life and we're not in hell. So we have sunny days. Again, we have friends. We have all these things. These are common graces. These are things God bestows on us, not because we deserve it. But because in God's grace, He kindly gives us these things. If we got what we deserve, we would not have sunny days. We wouldn't have puppies. We wouldn't have friends. We wouldn't have food. We wouldn't have water. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have anything if we got what we deserve. But in God's kindness, He bestows these things upon us. And in Romans 2, it talks about how He gives us these things so that these things drive us to turn to Him. 
That we repent and we recognize, God, you're such a kind God to give me these things despite my wickedness, despite my evil. How could I not live, live for you? How could I not serve you? But think about it. We have in this life all of these good things, but how often do we thank the Creator, acknowledge the Creator, worship the Creator, live for the Creator? The Puritans used to call this practical atheism. You're like, I'm not an atheist. Yeah, but how often in the day do you think about God? How much of your life is actually devoted to God, directed by God? You say you're not an atheist, but are you an atheist practically? How you live, how you think, how you act, how you speak, what you do, what you don't do. Absolutely. That's not a good condition to be in. That's a red flag. Right? So here's the call. What Christ is telling us to do is he's saying, how do you respond to this lamp? When the lamp comes, when the light of the world comes, how do you respond to it? How do you respond? That's what he's asking. And if you're, if you're responding in a, in, the, in, in a way of faith, you say, I believe in Christ. I'm responding in faith. If that's true, will it change your life or not? Yes. Remember the parable of the soils. We talked about how in the soils, the seed is cast. The seed lands on good seed or good soil. What happens with the good soil? It bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. It bears fruit. It actually does something. Something comes about from the fact that you actually believe spiritually. Something actually happens. And so this is where you're talking about the kingdom of God advancing. How is the kingdom of God advanced to the United States of America, to Clovis, New Mexico in 2022, when I don't look like Christ, I don't speak Christ's language, I live a thousand miles away from where Christ lived, we don't, I don't eat the same food as Christ, I don't wear the same clothes as Christ, same could be said for all of us. How can we explain the fact that today, this lamp that was buried beneath something over here 2,000 years ago, is now being preached over here and openly proclaimed over here? How is that possible? What's going on is that Christ is using His people to go and bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean you have to be an overseas missionary, but praise God for overseas missionaries. Doesn't mean that you have to be a preacher. What it means, though, is that if I've truly been converted, guess what's going to happen? The lamp, the light, the revelation that I've received, I'm going to embrace it, and I'm going to, by God's grace, cultivate it. It's going to fan. It's going to be fanned in the flame. And it's going to increase. Right? This revelation is going to increase. So the revelation I have, by God's grace, it begins to increase. And I begin to bear fruit in my life, with my family, at work. You know, there's four spheres over which God is over all of it. Number one is, is our family. God is over our family, over us as individuals. God is over, over us as individuals. We're accountable to God in our family life with our, in, in our, as individuals. The state is accountable to God, how they operate. To the extent that they put down sin or put up with sin, they're going to be held accountable for that. Romans 13, it says that they're ministers of the word to do good and justice. Okay, and then fourthly, in the church. And all of these spheres, whatever... The gospel, the lamp is shining whenever Christ's people are glowing with the gospel, so to speak. You know what's going to happen? It's going to, it's going to provide a glow in all those areas. In your home. Your home's going to be changed. You know, if you think about your home, this is why somebody was talking about, you know, when one, when one guy is converted, do you know what kind of impact that's going to have? When one, let's say a young man... And praise God, you know, we have a lot of young men here and in Lubbock that are really hungry for the Word. Let's say one man gets converted, one young guy, 22, 23. 
he doesn't have any children, he doesn't have a family yet. Let's say he does. Well, let's say he gets converted, right? Or he can be an old guy. He gets converted. He has a family, especially as a man, and a woman too, but especially as a man. He goes into that family. Do you not think that entire family is going to be changed? Think about the impact on that family if he's truly converted. And all of a sudden, he's like, you know what, guys? We are going to start living for the Lord here. We're going to pray. We're going to love the Lord. We're going to treat each other with kindness. All the things, right? We're going to be lovers of the Word. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Do you know how many generations that's going to impact? Think about, you know, it's not just like it's your grand, it's not just your family, your immediate family that's going to be impacted by that. It's going to be generations down the road that will be impacted by that one man's conversion and the influence he has in his house, for better or worse. That's a fact. That's how monumental this stuff is. And so as people are converted, as people receive the revelation of the gospel and they actually act upon it and they live it out, what happens? Everything around them changes. For women too, obviously. Think about the children that you're with. Think about at work. I mean, it's, 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 it's monumental. The consequences of whether or not you're in Christ. That's why in the Ten Commandments, when we read that passage where it said, you know, down to the third and fourth generations, you're talking about effects. He says, the fathers on the children, um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations, and those of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's a, it's a generational thing. Okay, So that's what Christ is saying. To the extent that you receive some of this revelation and you respond in the right way, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get more of it. You're going to get more of this light, more of this lamp, more of this revelation, more kindness, more meekness, more compassion, more love, more zeal for the Lord, more hatred for sin and ability to overcome sin. You're going to be able to do these things. It's a process. It's not overnight. It's a process. And then when you're looking at it generationally, what's going to happen? You're going to go from 10 guys who aren't even that sure of who Christ is to all of a sudden the entire world is going to be turned upside down for the sake of Jesus Christ. Every nation is going to bend the knee to Jesus Christ at some point. They will. It's a beautiful thing. We say, oh, this is not a Christian nation. No, it's not. But it will be, I promise. Why? Because guess who's on the throne? Jesus Christ. Guess who says that he owns all the nations? Jesus Christ. Guess who says go into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations? Jesus Christ. The disciples are going to be brought, or the nations are going to be brought in. That's the beauty that we have in Christ. That we don't serve some kind of weak, impotent, lifeless God who's sitting on his throne and pulling his hair out and saying, Oh man, I hope everything's going okay. We got, we got people murdering babies and, and, and sodomites being married in this country. You know, all these things. Listen, Christ is on the throne. That's the beauty of it. Guess what's going to happen? The gospel is going to come in and it's going to convert people and change people and transform people. And there is a revival going on in the United States of America right now with people, especially 20s and 30s. Have y'all noticed this with Reformed theology? Right? I tell you, you go anywhere in this country... Anywhere in this country, and I promise you, there are a bunch of young people, some of them with families, some of them not with families, who are absolutely on fire. Not just for evangelism and all that, but for theology and for leading their families in the right way, for working in the right way. They are on fire for the Lord. And they're reformed. I pro- in 50 years, man, this nation, and they're having a lot of babies. 
in 50 years, it's going to be looking really good. I promise. And they're being raised with the Word, you know? So that's what's going on here. So individually, what do you do with revelation, the revelation of Christ, the revelation of the gospel that you've received? Do you bury it or do you put it on a lampstand, right? Do you bury it? Do you hide it? Do you say, no, it's not going to shine anywhere. I don't, I'm going to say that I love the Lord. I'm just not going to shine it anywhere. Or do you put it on a lampstand and say, this is the Lord. This is who He is. And I'm going to, sh- wherever I'm at, at work, in my house, when it comes to politics, when it comes to culture, when it comes to Facebook, what, wherever I am. I'm going to make sure that Christ is lifted up and exalted. Because there's only two options at the end of the day. Christ says, you're either for me or against me. And if you're for me, you'll be known by your fruit. Why do you, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? He says in Titus, it says, they, they, by, their, by their words, by their, by their words, they say that they follow Him. But by their deeds, they deny Him. Right? So as you're looking through these things and you're examining yourself, ask yourself, what have you done with the revelation of the Word? With the revelation that we have, let me end with this. This is Matthew chapter 11. And he says this about these cities. Look what he says. He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because, this is verse 20 of chapter 11 of Matthew, because they did not repent. So most of his miracles are being done in this city, but they don't repent. What do you, Chorazin? What do you, Bethsaida? For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon were kind of the epitome of evil cities. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Will you, uh, you will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom, the day of judgment, than for you. You know why that's so terrifying? Because the people in Capernaum, the people in these areas, the people in Chorazin, they had seen Christ, they had seen Him do miracles, they had, they, they, they had a lot of gospel light given to them. They reject it. And Christ turns around and He says, you know Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember what happened? God's judgment, His fire, His brimstone destroys those cities. He says on the day of judgment, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those who receive the things of the gospel, the light that comes from Christ, the things of Christ, the things of the Bible, and reject it. Now, we live, again, 2,000 years on the other side, and we have way, way more. Not only do we have the full revelation of Jesus Christ in our hands right here being preached, but we have Bibles, we have all these things everywhere. Man, if you're not in Christ and you live in this land, the light that you've received is going to be horrific on the Day of Judgment because you buried it. But if you're in Christ... And you receive this lamp, and you love this lamp, and you want to you want to cultivate it. You want to learn more. Remember the disciples. This whole thing started because the disciples are going to Jesus, and they're asking more. They want to know more. They're hungry. If that's you, then praise the Lord, man. Why? Because you're on the right side. You're on the right team. You get to walk with the Lord. The Lord is with you. He's for you. He's not against you. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you know what that reminds me of. You know, you, can, you know, it's, it's like, I remember being in a, a college one time, and this guy was reading, we had to read Gospel of John for, for class. And these uh, unbelievers, you know, Gospel of John is not that difficult, but these unbelievers would read through the Gospel of John, and they're like, man, 
what is the, what's he talking about? And I'm like, really? And I'm sincere, you know, like, what do you, you really don't understand what he's talking about? He's like, yeah, they're, they're like, I get what he's saying. I just don't, I just don't, I don't believe it, right? Look what, look what Jesus says. Because this is the disciples' question. How come people don't believe this? If it's this obvious, if the lamp is that bright, why don't it, why doesn't everybody believe it? Well, he says this right here. He says that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. It's the whole Adam or adage, you know, why, why does the sun, why does the sun that hardens the clay melt the wax? So the lamp, the light of the world, the gospel is either going to melt you or it's going to harden you. That's what Christ is saying. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the one who came, um, not because he had to, certainly not because he was forced out of heaven, but that he came willingly for those who were at war with him, those who wanted nothing to do with them, those of us who were like cockroaches. When the lamp comes, we scatter, we scuttle, we hide, we make excuses. We thank you, O God, that in your mercy you have saved some, that you have delivered us from our sins. We thank you that Christ came to die for for people like that, for people who are unrighteous, people who are sinful, people who uh, have no hope in this world, have no purpose. Lord, we thank you for this lamp, the lamp that comes. Thank you that the lamp does not stay hidden. Thank you that this lamp is being proclaimed around this world today in North Korea even, in China, in in India, in Africa, in Russia, in all these places, Thailand, all these places, oh Lord, that that are still so so darkened by, by heathenism. And we thank you also that this gospel is being preached in Clovis, and around this country today, we thank you for the work of grace that's being done around this country. All those who are clinging to Christ and trying to, to, to live in light of the gospel, raise their families in the light of the gospel. Lord, fan that flame. Continue doing a work of grace, Lord. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to see these truths, to see the beauty of Christ, that you've changed us, that you've turned us from this, this slavery to sin. In this world, this world that's on us, this world that's dying, this world that, that can never satisfy. Lord, thank you that Christ died for people like us. Thank you that Christ was raised from the dead. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection still to come. Thank you that this life from here on out for all of eternity will consist in worshiping you and praising you and being with your people. And God, we pray that you'd go before us this week, that you would help us to live in light of the revelation of Christ that you've given. Help us to not bury this revelation. Help us to not extinguish it or put it out. Lord, we need your grace for this. We thank you that you're a God who works miracles, physically, yes, but spiritually especially. And we pray, O oh God, that, that the knowledge of the Lord would continue to cover this earth, to saturate this earth. As far as the east is from the west, north to south, Lord, that your gospel would continue to to cover this land and to cover every nation in the world. In Christ's name, amen.